Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone. And thank you for joining us at the 2022 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Glenn Borok and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. It is my pleasure to introduce our panel, Transgender Athletes, a conversation led by Malcolm Gladwell on data and participation policy. Our panelists today are Ross Tucker, sports scientist, Katie Barnes, feature writer at ESPN, Johanna Harper, PhD researcher. Our panel will be moderated by Malcolm Gladwell, author and co-founder of Pushkin Industries. The panel will run for 55 minutes and we'll, we will leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Please submit questions on Twitter using the hashtag data and participation. With that, I'll turn it over to you, Malcolm. Thank you. Um, welcome to all of you um, and to all of you. Uh, I thought I want to start with um, what I like to call Martian questions, which is the dumb question the Martian would ask if they were looking down on this panel. Um, and the first Martian question is, uh, women have, about when, maybe 100 years ago, women were led into things like the Olympics. And if you'd asked people 100 years ago why we had separate categories for men and women, they would have given a 19th century answer, right? Women and men are physiologically distinct, the only way to have fair competition is to separate them out. Does that definition in 2021 need updating? Katie, do you want to start? Or? Oh, um, well, I think, I think many people would still give that answer. Um, and I don't know that it is particularly untrue. I think what perhaps you know, we should think about is what it means, or like what to do, which is the point of this panel, right? When people transgress those ideas of gender and of sex, and how, how do we have a sporting apparatus that accommodates um, those identities and experiences if that is possible, which I think is ultimately the crux of this discussion and the disagreements. Yeah, so in other words, instead of having a, a, a bright line a hard, bright line between men and women. We need to accommodate, have some fluidity in that. In that, uh, is that what? Is that sure? I don't know if I if I think that we need mm -hmm. to blur the line. I think, in terms of how we've talked about this issue culturally speaking, you know, we talk about it as if there has always been a bright line, but we know that historically that line has been very difficult to police through policy. Um, and there are numbers of examples of folks who, at the elite level of sport, which I think is ultimately where a lot of people want to place this discussion, where um, people who are competing at elite level of sport don't fit uh, particularly as neatly on the women's side of that line um, as I think we would expect them to. Yeah. Ross, do you have thoughts on this? I, I would still answer the question exactly the same way as they would have done back then. Um, with, with some data, I would say that it's probably an incomplete answer that there might be other reasons that we separate male and female into separate categories in sport. 
But I would also say, and I would, I would defend the position and say that if we did not have a line separating those categories, we could forecast what the consequences of that would be because we have so much data now that when we compare male performances to female performances, we know that there is a, a large enough gap that for any matched level, by which I mean high school athletes competing for scholarships into college, college athletes competing to get into professional sport, professional athletes, we know that those gaps are so large that without separation, there would be effectively very few to no women in sport. And that means that the separation of categories, I would say to a Martian, is important because it allows us to recognize as equal, male and female, because we recognize that they are different. Mm -hmm. um, I listened yesterday morning to a discussion around the 50 years of Title IX. It's quite clear that there remains social, cultural, and, and where I'm from in South Africa, that's even more the case, barriers for women to overcome. But from a purely physiological point of view, that remains as true today as it was then. Yeah. The Martian, do you want to jump in? Do you want, do you want to wait for Martian question number two? Um, I would say that my answer would depend on, on whether one is talking about elite sport or recreational sport. Um, I would give the same answer that Ross did for, for elite sport. I, I would say that when we talk about recreational sport, which is where most people participate in sport, I, I, I think we do need to go beyond strict uh, I, I want to come back to this. I think that's okay. a very important point, and I want to return to that. Yeah. Um, Martian question number two is, the Martian looks at the title of this, session, Transgender Athletes, and says, is it the right title? Um, so when I was preparing for this, I chatted with a bunch of people, many people, about what to, questions to ask, what things, and every single example that I dealt with was about trans women, or people brought up was about trans women. And in fact, trans men, and the subject of trans men never came up. <laughs> so I'm wondering, are these conceptually two separate issues? And if all of the interest and concern and controversy is on the side of trans women, should we have called this panel trans women athletes, the Martian asks? I think it depends on the scope of your questions <laughs> um, in terms of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. In general, I think very much the focus around this discussion or a cultural debate that is certainly happening, it's about transgender women participating in girls and women's sports. Um, and that's true at all levels of this discussion, whether we're talking about recreation, youth sport, elite sport, et cetera. That's very much the focus. Um, that is not the only thing, I think, that has been caught up in this discussion. Um, but for the reasons that uh, Ross laid out around the physiological differences and the performance gap right, between those who are assigned male at birth and those who are assigned female at birth, and how even as increased resources and training um, has close the gap, it's leveled off and stayed pretty consistent, right, from an elite level. You know, there's also the assumption that people who are transgender men would not be able to access and compete and be competitive in uh, men's sports, uh, particularly on the elite level, especially if they transition medically post-puberty. And so there's very little attention, I think, paid to those discussions even though there are transgender men who are participating in both women's and men's sports um, at various levels of medical transition. And what that means, I think, culturally is an interesting question. But there are states, for example, that have 
just as they have restricted the access for transgender girls and women to access girls and women's sports, they've also restricted access for boys and men to access boys and men's sports. Um, and I think that's an interesting question when it comes to data and participation, whether or not that's appropriate. Uh, but it's certainly less of a focus. And we can't even talk about non-binary and gender expansive people. <laughs> We're like really not there yet. Um, but that's also going to be something that we have to confront uh, both culturally and scientifically in the coming years. I mean, from first principles, again, the, we've, we've explained to the Martian that the reason we have separate categories is to ensure fairness and safety, um, because in some sports there are collisions and contacts, and that these have a biological basis. So in that respect, the, and, and we speak about a bright line, if we were to break that line in a small place and say that there's a, an exception made for crossing over, that those concerns around fairness and safety and the integrity of the outcome would only exist in one direction. And so when World Rugby considered this, the, the idea of trans men playing men's rugby was a really tricky discussion. Because in effect, if the basis for the line is to protect fairness and safety, and in, in rugby safety is a major concern, then that individual is taking risk on, upon themselves. Because if there is a biological basis, strength, power, mass, um, size, bulk, that creates risk, then that person is accepting risk onto themselves. But in the other direction, it's risk to others. So I would, I would have been happy with, with naming something trans woman if the controversy revolves around the fairness and safety. So if, if the crux of this discussion is, is it fair and is it safe, then it is a trans woman question. It's not one that applies to trans men. Mm -hmm. There are some who would disagree. I have read um, trans men are allowed to inject testosterone and no other athlete is allowed to. And there are some people who have concerns that trans men will inject so much testosterone as to gain some advantages in some areas. I personally don't have those concerns, mm. but they have been expressed, have been expressed by significant people in writing. So the, the heat, the major heat is on trans women, but there are potential issues with trans but, men but, as well. But there, I would say again to Amashan that we've already done that. We did an experiment in the 1970s and 80s where we know that women from the Soviet Union and the Eastern countries did inject testosterone to dangerous levels. And yes, it harmed them, so that's why we want to stop it. But they never got to the level of elite men. Yeah. So you, you can, if that's the performance gap, then the, the administration of male hormones to women is going to take you to there. It's never bridged the gap. Yeah. Um, Leah Thomas, we're, that's obviously the, the highest profile case in this um, area since probably Renee Richards back in the 70s. I'm the only one here old enough to remember Renee Richards. <laughs> no, um, you're not. <laughs> but, uh, uh, Katie, can you, so for those of you, uh, Leah Thomas is a, a trans woman swimming for uh, the University of uh, Pennsylvania swimming team. And uh, prior to transitioning, she, she swam on the men's side of that same team. So she's an elite swimmer. She's breaking lots of records right now and this very much in the news. Katie, can you describe what is the protocol um, that the NC2A requires Leah Thomas and others in her position to go through to qualify for um, uh, competing in the uh, female half of the of swimming, and how does that uh, and and if she as she she has stated that she wants to continue 
swimming after graduation, um, what's the protocol she would need to qualify for the Olympic teams? How much time we got? <laughs> no, I want, you, I want you to do it as economically as possible. Because, yes, of course. And I know why you're looking at your, because it's a little baffling. Well, it's also changing. Yeah. It's very much in flux. So prior to January 19th, the NCAA policy uh, that went into effect in 2011 stipulated that for transgender women to be eligible to compete in the women's category, they needed to undergo 12 months of testosterone suppression and get cleared by the NCAA or whatever. But that was the, that was the rule. And on January 19th, the NCAA said, actually, we're going to defer to the policies by national governing bodies as per our committee is going to review them, the Committee on Sa uh, Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspects of Sports is the official title of that committee. And so they said, we'll review these policies and adopt them for our championships effective immediately. So then the question became, okay, well, what's USA Swimming's policy? And to that point, USA Swimming had a really process-oriented policy around youth wanting to institute a name change uh, to be competitive at the club level, and then in that policy deferred to whatever the IOC and FINA, the International Federation, said was appropriate. Well, the IOC has also recently said in late 2021 that they're going to have a framework of recommendations and principles for international federations to develop their own policies. So we don't know what FINA's policy is at that moment either. And so a couple weeks later, USA Swimming says, well, what we're going to do is require uh, transgender women who are competing in the elite category defined as members of USA Swimming, those who are going to compete in elite events, notice, like, importantly, the NCAA championships is not considered an elite event by USA Swimming, and those who want to be eligible to break American records beginning at age 13 and 14 need to go in front of an independent, an independent panel of three people and suppress their testosterone for 36 consecutive months below a level of five nanomoles per liter, which to that point, I, I think I'm pretty comfortable saying is the most restrictive policy from an elite level perspective. We had not seen that length of time before coupled with uh, that level of testosterone um, as well. And so then the NCAA says, actually, we're not gonna accept that policy. And instead we're going to say for the 2022 swimming championships that to be able to compete, you have to essentially comply with the previous policy of undergoing 12 months of testosterone suppression and also submit a one-time serum level of being below 10 nanomoles per liter. Yeah. Wait, so this, yeah. let's, 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 let's unpack this. Um, I would just like to point out I did it in like a minute and 30 seconds. So. I know, that was so impressive. <laughs> Thank you. Was, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> what, does, what happens to someone uh, who undergoes 36 months of testosterone suppression to... Uh, a level of five nano... Nanomoles per liter. Yes. What, hap what, what is the effect of that on a, uh, 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 someone in this position? Um, well, Joanne's just published a systematic review on right. it. So yes, there's no one has. better like, to, to explain <laughs> that answer than her. So our systematic review was on non-athletes. And certainly no one w would generally consider uh, a, a review of non-athletes to be definitive for athletes, but in this case, it's the best we have. Uh, so the two biggest findings that, uh, that our review found were that uh, hemoglobin levels in trans women went from male levels to female levels within three to four months, but that strength did not go from male levels to female levels 
even after 36 months of, of hormone therapy. Um, and um, the, there were other findings, but those, those are the two largest. And there are any number of parameters that will change with hormone therapy at different rates and uh, to different extents. Um, but strength will reduce, but not to female levels. Height won't reduce at all. And in swimming, height, and it's more limb length is important in swimming, but, but that's, that's an advantage. So there are a number of changes that will happen to trans women when they undergo hormone therapy, but hormone therapy will not turn trans women into cisgender or typical women. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say skeleton, no change. Uh, hemoglobin, as Joanna said, is going from the male to the female level. And then there's a whole host of variables, both inputs and outputs. So muscle cross-sectional area reduces slightly. Muscle mass goes down very slightly. Body fat goes up very slightly. And the consequence of that is that measured strength, and it's been measured in a couple of different ways, drops by between 3 and 7%. Would you say that percentage range is about accurate? It's, it's varied from study to study. In some, it's gone up, which is really interesting, probably an artifact of how it's assessed. But the, the decline is comparatively small, the result of which is the retention of relatively large differences between a post-transitioned trans woman and a biological female. When, no, are you talking about um, that level of five nano, nano? So, so the, studies, the studies actually get it way lower than that. Yeah. For, some re for various reasons, sport has drawn the line initially at 10, now at five. The studies get under that quite comfortably. 95% of all women are under two nanomoles per liter. A large study of roughly 250 trans women found that 94% of them were under two nanomoles per liter. Every athlete that I have data on is also under two nanomoles per liter. And that's regardless of where their governing body sits in. Trans women don't transition for sports. We transition to be more like other women. And that's the standard therapy to help us do that. So, um, so all of these studies are presumably based on trans women who bring their testosterone down below two nanomoles per liter. And I do want to clarify, I think it's important around, we talk about these testosterone levels, whether they're talking about 10 nanomoles per liter or five nanomoles per liter. As Joanna said, in regards to the ways that uh, testosterone levels for typical transgender women come down to within a typical cisgender female range, though the concern around those thresholds of testosterone actually have more to do with athletes with intersex variations than transgender women, which is a separate rabbit hole, but an important distinction to make. Because oftentimes, at least what I've found in my reporting and in engaging and having conversations like this with you know, the general public is that they look at that level, 10 nanomoles per liter, five nanomoles per liter, and say, oh, well, so they can be up to that level, right? Like with the assumption being that transgender women would be hovering at 10 nanomoles per liter which, as Joanna just laid out, is about five times the typical testosterone level of a cisgender woman. And so that's not exactly what happens. And I think it's very important to make that distinction, that delineation, both in terms of what those levels are trying to do from drawing a line perspective the population and the populations that they affect. What's the rationale? How do they come up with five? So I was on the committee that came up with five. Ah, so I, good. <laughs> so, um, the 10 
was based on the bottom of the men's range using immunoassay methods. Mm -hmm. um, immunoassay methods are no longer uh, the, the standard. Um, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry is. And um, the, <clears throat> the lower level of the men's range is no longer 10. It's now about 7.5 nanomoles per liter. So, so that necessitated a change. One of the things that we looked at at the time was um, uh, how high can cisgender or typical women have testosterone levels? And there's a condition called polycystic ovary syndrome, which affects about 5 to 10% of women. There's some nasty effects, but, but it does increase testosterone. And women with PCOS are overrepresented in sports, so it is an advantage in sports. Women with PCOS can have testosterone up to 5 nanomoles per liter and would never be restricted. The advantage they have is, is small enough that, that no one would worry about it. And so the rationale was, if, um, if we would let cis women compete with up to 5 nanomoles per liter because they have PCOS, then that should be the limit for, for trans women too, understanding that most trans women and most cis women will be well under that limit. And that would, um, wait, so are you, now are you comfortable with leaving it at five? I mean, I'm just curious. I guess my next question would be, um, how much uh, analytical rigor is behind these determinations at this point? Do we know, have we gathered enough data to know where to set a, a, a mark like that? We probably don't have enough data on, tr on trans women athletes to make any definitive answers at this point. Um, but um, one of the things that, uh, especially before uh, gonadectomy or removal of testes, there's some fluctuation in the testosterone levels of, of trans women. And so if you set it too much lower than that, if you're talking about a one-time measurement, then you may get somebody who's just on, on a little blip, a blip. Uh, if you measured them 10 times per year, their mean would be under two, but if you measured them on a particular day, they might be three or four. And, and so you need to be very, very careful. If you wanted to lower it, you'd have to talk about a, a mean testosterone over a length of time. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about what we don't know. Ross, can you, can you kind of identify key areas in which our, the level of our knowledge is insufficient? <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's very broad. <laughs> uh, there's a great deal that's unknown. I suppose for the purposes of the discussion, the key limitation, and Jan has explained to you exactly what happens when testosterone is lowered, is that no, no, no real studies exist yet on what happens when a person is athletically trained and then undergoes that same testosterone suppression. There was the most recent study came out last year in the, in the military, and so they were athletically trained, but I don't think they would describe themselves as elite. And so all the inferences that we have about the retention of advantages in trans women compared to female uh, are based on non-athletically trained individuals. So one can then, see, it's not enough, I don't think, to just say, well, in that case, we don't know. We, we can explore that further and say, well, what would the hypothesis be it, we know, for instance, that training defends against the losses that would happen without training to the extent that in 
physiology, there's a, there's a principle where if it takes X to get to a certain level, you can stay there at a level lower than X, with, with the stimulus lower than X. Um, astronauts, it's known, for instance, that during bed rest for three months, even small amounts of resistance training almost completely remove the muscle atrophy. So the concern would be with athletes is that the, the, the act of athletic training will actually reduce, will cause those reductions to be even smaller than they are in non-athletic individuals. But that study has not yet been done. So that would probably be the main one that you'd look at. And then with respect to the application of policy to different sports, every single sport, by virtue of the IOC's guidance that was released last year, now has to answer the question, what is the difference in my sport between male and female? Because the whole premise of lowering testosterone was to negate the advantages as a consequence of androgens like testosterone. And so the degree... And can I just mitigate and not negate would be a better term because, because we know that there are advantages that are just not going to be negated. And that's the, that's an important point. For me, you need to negate. You can't mitigate. It, it must be negated. Otherwise, it's still a category-crossing advantage. So I, I understand Jana's point there, but for me, it's negate. Can we negate those advantages so that we can then ensure inclusion, fairness, and safety can coexist? Now, that answer for a sport like, I'll use archery, because there was a paper on it recently, may look completely different to that answer for boxing and rugby and track and field. So every single sport, that would probably be their key question, is what's the typical advantage that we need to manage in order to ensure fairness, inclusion, and safety? So a strength-based sport might have a very different set of criteria than an endurance-based sport. Right, and then a, a sport that involves collision and contact has a different set of imperatives by virtue of risk compared to a sport that does not. So every single sport now, I think, is having to look at this, and this comes to what Katie was saying, is swimming was, finds itself in this situation. Every single Olympic sport is going to be in that situation in the next year or two. Yeah. So to, I, I, had, I warned you all that I was going to ask you for your magic wand experiment. And just so a magic wand, I'm obsessed with magic wands. Magic wands are the experiment you would do if I wave all, um, I suspend all practical, logistical, ethical, financial laws of nature constraints. I, may, I give you a magic wand and you're czar. You can, so tell me the experiment you would do that you think would be most helpful in resolving some of these issues around uh, trans athletes and their participation in elite sport? So the first thing I would say is that if you give me a magic wand, I get the Russians out of Ukraine. Let's, let's keep some perspective <laughs> here. Um, but uh, Focus. Focus <laughs> if you're saying you give me a magic wand that can only uh, enhance experiments, then, um, then, then what I would say is that what we need to do is we need to have multicentric, multinational studies on trans athletes, uh, longitudinal studies where we get them into the sports lab before they start hormone therapy and uh, follow them for at least two years. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, we are doing that on a very small scale at Loughborough University. We're just one place. But, but it needs to get much broader. Uh, there are a num number of concerns. There, you need to have uh, input from physiologists. You have, have to have uh, gender clinics on board. You have to have funding. And this has to happen 
uh, in many countries or you just won't get the numbers. And while it may seem, and, and I've been saying this for five years, that this is what needs to happen, and, and it's just barely closer than it was five years ago. So, so I am pessimistically saying that it will take a magic wand to make these experiments happen. And I'm, I'm sad to say that, but, but that, that's the experiment I do with my magic wand. And I want to build on that, actually, um, and sort of tie back to what Ross was saying about what we don't know. And for me, I also think, like, if I could wave a magic wand, and also this belies ethical concerns, is we need that information, that data from multiple ages, right? Because we're having this conversation today, you know, sort of tacitly acknowledging that we're really focused on elite sports, right? Whether we're talking about Leah Thomas, we're talking about the Olympics, we're talking about Division One, NCAA, et cetera, et cetera. But in the United States, there is considerable amounts of legislation that affect um, children all the way down to elementary school. Um, and up to uh, com like intramural collegiate sports, which is recreational. And so, and a lot of that is using some of the studies that we're talking about today and the data that we have now as it pertains to adults and um, people who began hormone therapy post puberty. And so there are a number of athletes who would be affected by this legislation who will never go through testosterone driven puberty. Um, or endogenous puberty of either sex. And so no, having data around just knowing how hormone therapy affects athletic performance across ages and when you start, because puberty is very messy and starts differently at different times, lasts longer depending on the person. And so what happens if you start testosterone, if you start testosterone suppression when you're 15 versus going on blockers when you're 11? versus when you're 17, versus when you're 19. Like, all of that is really important information when we're talking about the kinds of policies that should be developed and are appropriate, and are age appropriate, and competition level appropriate. And we simply do not have an answer to those questions. So if I could <laughs> wave a magic wand, I'd want an answer to all of those questions, and I am pessimistic that we will actually be able to answer that. So. Can I just jump in here? So later today, I'm going to be meeting with someone, and we'll just keep this, and, and we are actually talking about implementing um, a fairly broad-based study on adolescent trans people, looking at them, uh, trans people, the earliest they go on uh, blockers is Tanner stage two, which is very early in puberty, and, and that's where this study aims to start people, but also people starting, adolescents starting a little later. And, you know, it's going to be at least a five-year study. It hasn't started yet, cool. but at least we're talking about it. That's great. Call me when it's done. Okay. <laughs> Ross? So I've got many magic wonders. I'll give you two of them, though. The first one would be a, a mind reader qualitative survey, and that would be to ask everyone in the world, if women's sports exists to exclude the advantages that males have by virtue of testosterone and androgens during development, would you make exceptions for individuals based on identity if you knew no data at all, yes or no? Because that would at least give you a start point. I think that would be useful for us to have a start point about how many people would actually make the exception in the absence of evidence. Then we can say, actually, hang on, we've got this and this and that. Does that change your mind, yes or no? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but at least it's transparent. We understand people's imperatives. But then I would, then I would kick off with a randomized control trial, and I'd find four team competitions around the world. They'd be the NBA, Premier League Rugby in England, Premier League Football in England, that's soccer, sorry, 
AFL in Australia, and then let's do the Olympics as well. So five competitions. I'd randomize all the men in those competitions into two groups. One gets a placebo, one gets testosterone suppression. That is typical of transition. I'd then integrate all those men into the women's equivalent competition, a WNBA, the Women's Premier Rugby, the Women's Premier Soccer Tournament in England, Women's AFL and Women's Olympic events. And my, because what I'd be doing now is I'd basically be taking a group of biological males with those androgens and testing the hypothesis, does the lowering of testosterone remove those advantages? My null hypothesis would be that after, say, six months, once this new ecosystem has formed, that 50% of the players in the NBA would be from my male cohort, 50% Premier Rugby for women, 50% Soccer AFL, and that half the medals would be won in the Olympics by those individuals. If that was the case, if 50% of all the medals were now being won and teams being filled by biological natal males whose testosterone is lowered, then there's no problem. We've proven that we can achieve female-level performance by changing the biology of testosterone. That, and that would be what that's I know what I think I'd find. I don't think I'd find that at all. I'd be surprised if 10% of those places are still held by women. But that would be my randomized control trial. And it would take two years and it would be done and I'd violate all ethical principles possible. <laughs> but I, so we but take, I would at least have an answer. So we take the US men's Olympic team and we give them 36 months down to five nanomoles per liter. Mm. And we have them play the US Olympic women's team in a seven game tournament and we see who wins. So is LeBron at five nanomoles? Mm. Mm. You know, how much yeah. is he still LeBron? Right, well, but and I there'd, think be, there'd be various outcomes. I'd, I'd be looking, first of all, in the first six months, 12 months, 18 months, coaches will select based on performance. Does that ecosystem settle 50-50? Then I'd start tracking things like injury incidents. Who gets injured by whom in these games? Who, who scores points? Who has more assists? Who wins the rebounds? And, and over time, you, you start to develop a picture of exactly how performance has changed. Ideally, what you would do is you'd actually have four groups, not two male groups altered, and you'd mix them all together and you'd, and you'd let them stratify out or not into four different groups. That would, for me, be the definitive way to answer this groups, and the quickest. The four groups are, oh, I'm going to play with this magic wand for a moment. What are the four, the four groups are? So two, two biological male, two biological female, and then in each group, you have a group on a placebo and a group on the reverse of their hormonal situation. So the males, you lower the testosterone, and the females, you, effectively, you're doping 25, for half the women and half leaving alone. And the other half, you're suppressing, the, of the males, you're suppressing testosterone, and the rest, you're leaving alone. What's interesting to me about that, as someone who knows nothing about this issue, um, is that presumably we would discover that in some cases, in certain sports, the, uh, the gap is very large, but we would also, surely the most interesting thing would be the discovery of how small it could get. Sure. So it's conceivable, is it, that there may be an Olympic sport where it's zero? There's mm. equestrian already is. Yeah. Uh, I, I believe in ski jumping it is, and I mean, there's no basis for those sports to even be separated by sex. They should be, uh, they should be one, we'd cut the medals available down, that's why they'd reject it, <laughs> but they should just be one, one gold medal in some of the sports. Yeah. And well, it's possible I, I also there are think, others. I think it's important, at least in the context of this discussion, where identity does kind of matter in that we're not, we're not talking about LeBron being a transgender woman and wanting to play in the WNBA. A lot of times when we're talking about these issues, even if we want to take an elite athlete like Leah Thomas, 
right? Like she's not LeBron. There's, that's a completely different, I think, discussion. And I think really it sort of preys on some of the, uh, the cultural associations that we have with gender and also this issue. So, you know, when we talk about transgender women competing in women's sports, you know, we talk, we, a lot of times terms are used like biological male, right, which I think completely undercut the validity of the identity of a transgender woman. And also, if people think about like Joanna Man, right, like that's, you know, the cultural, like visual that we have um, of a film of somebody who is a cisgender man pretending to be a woman in order to dominate women's sports. And while not everyone believes that in this discussion, I do think culturally the general public is not making distinctions and delineations in the way that we are. Um, and so for me, you know, the idea that we would have a definitive answer to the question by testing elite athletes and artificially suppressing, well, not artificially, but suppressing their testosterone and raising their testosterone and doing those experiments such as Ross suggests, and that that produces a definitive answer to this question, I think completely ignores the fact that a lot of these studies are being used to justify the restriction of kids from playing sports. And so I think there's a lot that we can talk about in regards to competitive advantage, the science around advantage, what's settled, what's not settled. But we also have to grapple with the fact that there isn't a scientific reason to restrict a 10-year-old from accessing sports. Um, and that that is in legislation that has passed across this country. Um, and I'm speaking specifically about a United States, from a United States perspective here. But I do think it really holds weight in this discussion because there are implications that are affecting an entire community of people outside of whether or not it's fair for an elite athlete to transition and whether or not she still remains, um, whether or not she still retains competitive advantage. That's an important question to answer, but we also have to do so in an ethical way that grapples with all of the fallout from engaging in what ultimately uh, can be um, rhetoric that is damaging in ways that we perhaps did not expect. That, that brings, up, brings us back, I think, nicely to what Joanna said at the very beginning, which is this question of um, that the, the, the kind of um, conceptually, the, this question as applied to elite athletes is very different from this question applied to non-elite athletes. And um, let's talk about that for a minute. So. Um, how do we uncouple, if these two things are distinct, how do we uncouple them? And what are the, uh, if you had to kind of convince people to say that, well, Leah Thomas is not the, is not the modal athlete in this discussion. Um, she's an outlier over here. There are, you know, and there's a very, very small, presumably a very, very small number of elite trans athletes about whom this discussion is being but a very large number of non-elite trans athletes. I think very large is generous. Well, it's, compared to the number of elite athletes. Correct, it's yeah. still a very small number um, of people. So talk, how do, we, how do we disentangle these two questions? Well, what I would suggest is that at any level of sport where we're not doing drug testing and there's no money involved, that we allow people to compete in 
whichever gender category they feel most comfortable. And we should also probably look at doing things because there are non-binary people in the world. There are, are we should look at, at perhaps at, at recreational levels of doing things other than splitting things into boys and girls, men and women. And, and there are all sorts of other ways we can divide or not divide uh, sports. You know, the sports like ultimate frisbee, you know, are, are inherently co-ed sports. But um, but at the level where money comes into play, and certainly in the United States, college scholarships involve a huge amount of money. Um, and at national high school levels, there is drug testing involved. So at those sorts of levels, which are upper high school levels, then I think we have to do more than just use gender identity. But, but at any level below that, um, you know, we don't. And, and I think it's a very important question for, for sports governing bodies. If you're going to say that trans women can only compete if their testosterone is under five nanomoles per liter, well, that requires a blood test. Are you prepared to do blood tests? And the answer is almost invariably, no, they're not. Can I just, is, is, the, is the issue not necessarily money, but selection? Because how do you, at the college level, there's no money. There might be scholarships that are earned. Well, there's all kinds of money in there's college lots, sports. Lots of money. Not, <laughs> you, you can't be that What I'm saying is you, you cannot always forecast that there is money there when the selection is made potentially years before. So is, the, is the issue not selection? Because the, the whole problem is that sport is a zero-sum game because it is interconnected along a pyramid that leads you to, we all talk about the Olympic Games, but five or six levels below that, that you're still on the same path. And that, so the concern for me would be that you break that pathway up. It's not money. It's the, it's the integrity of the pathway which functions by virtue of selection. So is, is, the, is the exclusion not more likely to be successful if you, if you base it on selection into teams as opposed to money? The, I'm not sure exactly what you're getting at. Are you saying that we should exclude 10-year-old trans girls from teams because you're worried that we won't develop enough cis girls for, for college sports? No, not at that age. Not oh, at that okay. age. But the moment you're on a pathway, and you know, you're in the U.S. I mean, I'm not from here, but I know that your system is a very aggressive meritocracy. That's mm -hmm. how sport functions. It's what's, it's what's delivered you success in things like Olympic sports. And so, the cons so when, when the Leah Thomas thing, for example, is in the news, the challenge is that she's taking places away from people. And it's at a high enough level that it, it, it's, it's close enough that you can start to see the implications of that. The same thing is true for C.C. Telfer at a high school. It's taking scholarships away from individuals. And, and, and just, just on that, broadly speaking, I always see headlines, we're banning, preventing access to sport. This, regulating male and female categories is no more a ban than, than saying that a heavyweight can't fight against a lightweight is banning a boxer from boxing. It's not. It's the appropriate regulation of categories based on necessary recognized biological attributes. And, and so therefore, it, it, you, 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 I, just, I don't know if you can just delineate it based on there's money or there's not, because you can't always forecast and predict that. So this, this taking places, I, I'd like to take issue with the, the taking places thing. I would suggest that in a general sense in society, that trans people belong in the spaces that they identify in. Um, before we got here, I, I used the, the women's restroom, and I 
firmly believe that's, that's the restroom I should be using. Um, uh, you know, I, I, um, I buy women's underarm deodorant for whatever it's worth, right? <laughs> um, uh, um, so, you know, I think that trans women in general belong in women's spaces. And so if we accept that, and not everybody does, but if we accept that, then I would suggest that it's not you take a space, but I think if trans women as a group take a disproportionate number of spaces, and I would say, you mentioned Leah Thomas, I would say in the NCAA, there are more than 200,000 women competing every year. Trans people make up roughly 1% of the population. So based on that, we should be seeing 1,000, 2,000 trans women competing every year in NCAA sports. And yet, there's only a handful. There's undoubtedly fewer than 50 trans women, and most of them are hidden in the NCAA sports. Most of the reason for the underrepresentation is sociological, but the fact is that those 50 women, 50 trans women by population, deserve 2,000 spots. So I could say that almost 2,000 spots for, that should go to trans women are being taken by cis women. And you say one spot for Leah. And, and so I think that if we are looking at an underserved, underrepresented population, um, you know, saying that, that one trans woman is taking spots, I, I think that's, that's not true. I think you need to look at what happens on a population-wide basis. I also... Thank you. Wow, claps. <laughs> I also think that when it comes to the notion of sports being a zero-sum game, for me, a lot of times, and I'm not necessarily pushing back against what you said, Ross, in regards to the usage of that language, it just made me think about how when we talk about sports, we operate from a place of deficit all the time and scarcity. There's not enough. There's never enough. There's not enough spaces, not enough money, not enough time, not enough access. And I wonder what would happen if we actually just funded women's sports. <laughs> like, what if like, we actually just gave women's sports like what they deserve under the law in the United States? Like, any Title IX expert will tell you that the overwhelming majority, if not all, of the major institutions in the country um, are out of step and out of compliance with Title IX. Like, you know, we talk about, I mean, we're talking about Leah because, of course, she's in the news, but, like, you know, there are, like, there are numbers of spots, I mean, arguably hundreds by some analysis, that should be available for women in the Ivy League that are not there because people are not compliant with Title IX. And so from my perspective, I wonder like what would happen if instead of operating from a sense of scarcity, we instead looked at actually putting in a place, like a viewpoint that instead prefers abundance, just more for everyone. Like it, I don't think it would feel so existential in the way that it does now. And I wanna acknowledge that it does feel existential for a number of women's sports advocates, for a number of athletes in women's sports, uh, for a number of cisgender women, generally speaking, that this conversation feels like an existential threat to what they believe about themselves and also about how they see the world and undercutting their experiences. And I think that's important to acknowledge and that that's not always you know, going to be something that is existential for transgender women. Just this is a very, very hard conversation. And it, I often think that one of the reasons it is so hard is because those of us who are invested in women's sports, who played girls in women's sports, 
understand the scarcity of that space. Mm -hmm. And so what if it just wasn't so scarce anymore? What, what you know, as you're talking, I'm reminded of the, um, the legal adage, difficult cases make bad law. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it strikes me that the Leah Thomas, case, Leah Thomas case is a difficult case that may lead us to make, is leading to some bad laws. And to your point, Katie, um, is, there, is, the, is the answer, someone's holding up a sign, but I'm not wearing my glasses. What's that say? It says five, five minutes, minutes left. It says five minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, is, is one solution to this a kind of um, radical change in the way we publicly talk about this, where we spend a lot less time on the difficult cases and a lot more time on the easy cases? The easy case is what you just said. Let, what if we made the space of women's sports so large that we didn't feel like it was existential, where everybody was welcome? That's the, but that's not the conversation we're having, right? We're, you know, the, the public conversation, the Fox News conversation is about Leah Thomas. It's not about this, this it's not about the easy case. I mean, yeah, I would agree. It's, it's not about the easy cases, but I also think that there's an intense disagreement around what would be considered easy, right? Like, you know, there are people who very much believe that we should, that there's a physiological basis for why we should sex separate sport at five, six years old. I've had people say that to me, people who are in elected office. And so I have yet to find an endocrinologist who will say that to me, but that doesn't mean that that viewpoint isn't out there and that it's not um, underneath some of this legislation. So whereas I think there are absolutely folks who would believe that for kids, for recreational sports, I mean, the overwhelming majority of our sporting experience as adults is co-ed and recreational. Um, you know, so much of my childhood was spent, you know, beating boys on the blacktop and basketball. Like, th that's a thing that I think describes much of a childhood experience. But we're focusing, of course, on this narrow time period in, in many people's lives considering, and also on a narrow sporting experience. And that is trickling down to, a, uh, to affecting a broad sporting experience in the context of legislation in the United States. And then also, I think, opening the door for other kinds of legislation that affects transgender people specifically and LGBTQ people more broadly. And so for, like, as an example of that, you know, in 2016, right, when um, North Carolina passed HB2, there was such public outcry around the regulation and restriction of bathrooms in this way. Um, and uh, I mean, a tremendous amount of public outcry, so much so that it killed other bills that were pending during that time. And you know, Texas wouldn't even pass it the following year. And now, after the proliferation of passage and enactment of uh, bills that affect transgender youth, we're seeing a tremendous amount of openness around bills passing that affect different slices of the experiences in public life of trans people and of LGBTQ people more broadly, um, and doing so uh, with relative impunity. And that, to me, I think is a really important part of the conversation is if we're going to have a conversation and grapple with what it means to believe in transgender inclusion in sport as it pertains to competitive advantage, how that affects cisgender women, we also need to, I think, grapple with what does it mean when we're, go when, uh, you know, we're engaging in rhetoric that is undercutting the validity of the experiences of transgender people and the LGBTQ community broadly as well. But to... to to, to um, all of which raises, I think, a really, a really important point, which is, um, you know, the notion you're describing a notion of backlash. Mm -hmm. That the backlash here is very strong. But does 
someone like Leah Thomas in that position, um, uh, do they diminish or do they um, accelerate backlash? For example, um, should she and other transgender um, athletes set all the, break all the records of women swimming over the next five years? Does that make the job of the conversation you would like to have about non-elite non, um, sports and transgender athletes easier or harder? Oh, harder. There's no question about that. I mean, well, so, but wait, that's super interesting place yeah, to... We don't have time, but yeah. I know we don't have time, harder. but like, but this is this phenomenon that we're discussing, which is the elite sports are going in this direction and the non-elite sports are going this direction and success in this era may undercut success in the other side of the equation. Is that a fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Leah Thomas is, I have, in public hearings that I have watched, she has been brought up specifically by name in the Arizona legislature and in the Indiana legislature. And we're talking about Leah now, but only two bills have been signed into law of the 11 that have actually been signed around one this minute. issue this year. One minute. I know I'm going to like, <laughs> What does that say? One minute. One minute. Okay, one minute. But now it's like 30 seconds. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to let, wait, 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 wait. I, so but, let's all wrap up. I'll give you all a, a ch yeah. chance to wrap but up. But before Leah Thomas, there was Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller in Connecticut. There was Cece Telfer. There was Juniper Eastwood. There are other examples that are used in a similar way. You know, for a number of states that have considered and passed this legislation, they were talking about Andrea Yearwood and the Connecticut case, as it is often referred to. Um, and so there's... Sorry, your time's up. Yes, my time's up. So period, that's all. All right. So I would say Thank you. that if we let trans women compete in women's sport, then we have to let them win. Not win disproportionately, mm. but win, at least some of the time. I would conclude by saying that all the examples that have just been mentioned, and there are others, Thomas Hubbard in the Olympic Games, they are predictable manifestations of what the policy currently says combined with what the data currently says. So the, the data is, is clear that there are retained advantages which predict that a person will gain or improve rank when they make the transition from men's into women's sport and that that will continue to happen more and more often. Now, you could argue that we should make some exceptions case by case. There are many reasons not to go, in my opinion, down, down that particular route, but they are a manifestation of the policy. They're not the things making the law. Yeah. Um, our time is up. I didn't actually get to any audience questions. I apologize for that. Um, I kept looking and there just wasn't, you know, this seemed more vital. Um, but uh, thank you all very much for a, um, I feel like we were just getting to the point where the conversation was getting interesting, but um, we have to stop. But um, I appreciate all of you uh, joining us today. Thank you. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.